I'd like to start by thanking the university for arranging this dialogue. I'd like to thank Dr. Wallach, Professor Richard, and, and of course, the Taubin Foundation, and especially my distinguished colleague and friend, Rabbi Jim Rudin, for allowing me the honor of participating in this very important dialogue. This is my first visit here to the university, and I'm extremely grateful to Bruce Feiler for giving my name for this particular session. I'm delighted that I have some distinguished Muslims who accompanied me for this journey. They're sitting here in front, the journey of dialogue, because to my mind, there can be nothing more important than a dialogue of this nature. Too often, when we think of a Jewish-Muslim dialogue, we see it through the prism of the Middle East. The tragic, the violent, the senseless, the ceaseless cycle of violence that we see on our television sets. And I pray, and I'm sure you pray along with me, that we see a settlement that both people can live in stability, in harmony, in security, and in peace and they live sooner rather than later in this condition. Because to me, the relationship between Judaism and Islam is far deeper than this unfortunate episode in history when the two religions seem to be locked in confrontation. Indeed, if I have any thesis this afternoon, it is that there is this thin veneer of hostility and violence that we are seeing now over a very strong and permanent base of mutual understanding and of mutual respect and of common values. Indeed, I'll simply raise three questions this afternoon. The first is to point to this base, this common base between Judaism and Islam, and indeed Christianity, but I'll focus on Judaism and Islam. So to ask the question, what is common? Secondly, to ask the cultural context of the Judaic-Islamic dialogue or relationship. And finally, the way ahead. What should we be doing? How should we move ahead? So let me try to answer the question, what is common? And it's important to point this out because in America today, all the polls confirm that something like 80% of Americans admit to knowing very little about Islam, to also being hostile to Islam. So we are starting with a great disadvantage. 
and the figures in the Muslim world are not much better. They may be even worse. So we have two huge double prejudices to overcome in this dialogue. And yet, and I quote my friend Rabbi Ken Cohen on my campus at American University, who constantly says that these three religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are like three sisters. They're part of the same family. And like three sisters, they sometimes fight, they sometimes make up, but they belong to the same family. And that is what is important and for us to remember. So the first most important point I wish to emphasize is that Islam is part of the Abrahamic tradition. It simply is. Whatever you may have heard of Islam in the press, which may be contrary, you may have heard Islam is a religion of idol worshippers and Satan worshippers and baby killers and so on. That is all simply nonsense. Islam is part and very consciously part of the Abrahamic tradition. Here is the evidence. The notion of God, omnipotent, universal, invisible, the same. The notion of the values, the Ten Commandments, exactly the same. The notion of the messengers and the prophets, exactly the same. The great names in Judaism, Moses, Abraham and so on, are also the great prophets of Islam. I can't, as a Muslim, talk about Jesus, who is Isa in Islam, or Moses, who is Musa in Islam, without adding the words Musa alayhi salam, which means Moses, peace be upon him. Because to me, Moses or Ibrahim, uh, Ibrahim is a great, revered and loved prophet. The holy book, the notion of the text, sent and inspired by God. An idea of a ledger in our lives to be doing good, to be pious, and that the day of reckoning. There are also differences. Differences, some not so important. Muslims, for instance, don't eat pork. They don't drink alcohol. There's a similarity with one faith of the Abrahamic tradition and one, the other one with the other faith. The notion of conversion, now Judaism does not have a developed notion of converting people, Islam does, and so does Christianity. And here we have problems in history because you've had these two world religions, the Christians about one, two billion, Muslims 1.3 billion, and both actively wishing to convert and spread the message. There have been times in history especially in early Muslim history, when Jews and Christians and Muslims have been able to live together for long periods of history in harmony, in stability, in mutual respect. Muslim Spain, a thousand years ago, is a good example. They shared a common language, a common culture, and they produced a very rich civilization, a rich civilization that created art and architecture and thought and translated the great Greeks and the Greeks were translated into Arabic and then into Latin and from Latin into French and English and really laid the foundations for what became the Renaissance. When Jews and Muslims were expelled from Andalusia, once again there was a shared trauma. And until this time in history, Jewish and Muslim relationships are not really sad or hostile at all. Even the birth of Islam laid the foundations for what would be common between the three faiths. For Muslims, the fact that Isaac 
and Ismail are both sons of Abraham is more important than the fact that some people commenting on the sad situation in the Middle East explain it by saying, well, these are descendants of one son of Abraham and the other people are descendants of the other son of Abraham and therefore they are doomed to this perpetual conflict. I, as a South Asian Muslim, don't see it like this. To me, both Isaac and Ismail are both sons of Abraham. And if I love and revere Abraham, I love and revere both the sons of Abraham. It doesn't make sense to me that somehow I am tilting to one son against the other. It's, it's just meaningless. Both are equally loved and revered. Similarly, from early Muslim history, we know the example of Umar, the great Khalif of Islam, who when he entered Jerusalem, the first thing he did was to allow the Jews back into Jerusalem from where they had been forbidden. And then he asked the local bishop for the site of the Wailing Wall. And he was not shown the site because the bishop was embarrassed because the wall was used as a garbage dump. And it was this great king of Islam who took a pail and a shovel and led the cleaning up process because he said, I'm here to pay respect to this great site, which is an Abrahamic site. And it's associated with some of the greatest religious figures in our tradition. So there has been a time in our history when there has been mutual respect and mutual understanding and a common source for our Abrahamic traditions. But my second question, what is the world that we are living in? What is the cultural context of the present relationship between Jews and Muslims? And here it gets complicated. It is a dangerous world. It is a violent world. It's a complicated world. First of all, it's a world caught up in what we call the processes of globalization. Massive technological changes taking place in our lives, which are upsetting and creating imbalance in societies throughout the world. We know that the United States of America now physically is in the heart of the Muslim world. United States troops are in Iraq. There is a war situation. Troops are in Afghanistan. Pakistan is involved. So the United States of America is very directly involved in the Muslim world. We also know, in terms of the cultural context of this discussion, that, and I'm indebted to my friend Dr. Jonathan Sachs for this figure, that there are 243 individuals who own more assets than more than half the world's population. So 243 individuals equal more than over half the world's population. Now this dramatic imbalance has to create some tension and some conflict in our world. We also know of the demographic compulsions of our discussion. We have the Jews as a community, small, couple of million in Israel living in the heart of the Muslim world and a Muslim world that is growing exponentially in terms of population. And therefore, some relationship, some cordiality, some good neighborliness has to be evolved between these two. We also know that there is a certain threat, a certain pressure on family life in all the Abrahamic traditions for all kinds of modern developments that take place in our times. And this is causing concern in traditional societies. I know that we share, the Abrahamic faith share, respect for family life, 
respect for children, respect for elders. And that too, in a sense, is being rediscussed and rechallenged. So we need to remember that. We also know that there is a great deal of anger in the Muslim world. There is a great deal of anger which drives young men and women, unfortunately, into acts of violence, acts of suicide, which are not Islamic in nature. They're not encouraged or suggested by Islamic theology at all. In fact, someone committing suicide is violating two injunctions of Islam. Number one, to commit suicide, which is against the dictates of the Abrahamic faiths, because technically God gives us life, only God can take life. And secondly, because suicide involves the deaths of totally innocent people. And there's a marvelous verse in the Jewish scripture, which Rabbi Jim will confirm, which says that if you take the life of one individual, it is like taking the life of the entire universe. And that is echoed in the Quran, in the Muslim holy book. So categorically, these acts that are taking place and are a consequence of a great sense of anger, frustration, a sense of injustice, a sense of being under siege in the Muslim world are causing some of these acts and we need to address them and we need to try to rectify them. Muslims will talk about the Palestinians. They will point to the plight of the Kashmiris. They will talk about the Chechens and they will say that these groups have not seen any justice for the last half century. We need to resolve these problems. If we don't resolve them, you will have 1.3 billion people in a state of turmoil. And that's a dangerous scenario for the future. Finally, and this is my third question, how do we move ahead? What should we be doing if we need to tackle at the fundamental base these questions, these great looming problems on the horizon? I believe the first most important step is this kind of dialogue. This is still innovative, this is still new, and what it does is it allows us to air our own ideas, to explore prejudices, thought, history, tradition in a civilized way on a great campus like this great university. And this dialogue must be encouraged, it must be repeated, and it must be visible. I am involved in another dialogue. Today I'm in dialogue with my friend, uh, the rabbi here, Rabbi Rudin, but I'm involved in another dialogue with Professor Judea Pearl, the father of Danny Pearl, who was so brutally killed in Karachi. And even that act of dialogue created a great deal of hostility in my own community. I was, when we started this about two years back, threatened, I was uh, attacked, and I had to withstand this because if I backed down, the dialogue would not move ahead. And thankfully, we've crossed that hurdle now. More and more people are joining that dialogue. So it has to be done, and it has to be done even at personal cost, if necessary. Secondly, I believe that we need to read about each other to begin the process of understanding who are we? Are we visiting each other's religious sites? Do Muslims visit synagogues and churches and vice versa? How many Muslims do you know? How many Mus Jews and Christians do Muslims know? We need to be able to take advantage of living in this great country, which is a multicultural, multi-religious society. We need to be taking advantage and therefore exploring our cultures, our traditions. But this has to be done, the understanding, the reading, because dialogue by itself is not sufficient. 
there has to be some understanding and some reading about each other. And from this, my experience has shown, friendship grows. Because dialogue, reading, understanding without friendship is still incomplete. But with friendship, which begins to transfer and transform the relationships, everything changes. Once you're friends, you can talk about solutions to the most difficult problems. And these friendships are possible. My book, which Professor Richard so kindly pointed out, Islam Under Siege, is dedicated to my friend, Professor Lawrence Rosen at Princeton University. Now, I was told that this was the first book dedicated to a Jewish professor by a Muslim professor. Both of us are anthropologists. I have immense respect for Larry at Princeton, and I felt this was the man I needed to dedicate my book to. So it was a gesture of friendship and nothing more. And finally, we need to discover certainly the Muslims, certainly the non-Muslims, the Abrahamic roots of our traditions. If we can rediscover the Abrahamic roots, we can rediscover what is that is common between us. We know the problems, we know the differences, we know there's so many differences between us, and we are reminded of this nonstop in the media. But we need to be able to point out that yes, we have these differences, but we also have this that is common. And Abraham himself, and that is why I'm so grateful to Bruce Feiler, who in a sense revived the study of Abraham and uses Abraham as a symbol for what is common between us. Abraham is a marvelous starting point, equally revered and loved by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Perhaps Jews and Christians don't realize how central Abraham is to our tradition in Islam. At every prayer, every Muslim, Right now as I speak, there will be millions and millions of Muslims at prayer, and they will be praying to Abraham and his family. Now I ask myself when I'm told that you people are anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, how can a Muslim who's praying for blessings for Abraham and his family be actually anti-Abraham and his family, who are the Jews and the Christians that descended from Abraham? So we have much to learn. And I believe this rediscovery is something that needs to be encouraged. And therefore, I'm grateful, and I'll conclude with this, for this chance to have the dialogue. And I'm grateful to the university, and I'm grateful to Dr. Wallach, who I know has spent a lot of time and trouble in putting this together. Thank you very much. It's a very good thing that uh, we were introduced because um, you could not tell the Muslim from the Jew because we have thinning hair. We both are wearing dark suits and red neckties. So it's good you have a program that you know has uh, who we are and and uh, and I don't mean that just simply as a joke. Uh, um, we are cousins, and I think. Um, uh, Professor uh, Akbar Ahmed said it very well. Not only do we share uh, a similar hairline, a tailor, and a necktie, but both of us write for Religion News Service, although this is the first time we've met. We both write weekly columns 
that appear around the country. And I've always admired his writings, and he was very kind to say he admires mine. So maybe next time we'll switch each other with different bylines and see how that works out. I'm very grateful to be here uh, for my first trip also, uh, as my Muslim colleagues said, it's his first trip here to be at Santa Barbara. Uh, it's too bad that my daughter, who works for Walt Disney Company in Burbank, wasn't here this afternoon to hear the introductions. She would have thought I was either dead or maybe she would have believed part of it. Uh, but it was a very gracious introduction. A little too brief. I could have used a little bit more. <laughs> After all, uh, uh, Professor Ahmed came from Washington. I came from Sanibel, Florida. We, as we say in Yiddish, we made a long schlep, a long drag to get here. And um, we're both very appreciative of the enormous hospitality and excitement about this, uh, this conversation. And indeed, and indeed, it is a conversation. It's not a presidential debate uh, such as we've had in the past uh, uh, three weeks or so. This is not a debate. Um, let me say right off, and uh, we both have agreed to make our remarks quite short, so you all will have a chance to uh, ask questions, and the Reverend Ann Howard will field them and, and um, ask them of us. Um, to quote a former senator from Massachusetts, whose initials were JFK, John F. Kennedy, uh, I believe strongly after nearly 40 years of work with the American Jewish Committee in Interreligious Relations that Muslim-Jewish relations is the new frontier, the new frontier for the 21st century. Now, for the past 40 years, especially since 1965, uh, since the conclusion of the Second Vatican Council in Rome, Christian-Jewish relations have intensified and mutual respect and understanding has been built. And despite the many positive achievements between Christians and Jews, anti-Semitism, the State of Israel, proselytizing, um, Bible studies, Messiahship, end of days, all of that, prayer, much more work needs to be done, but at least we can say 40 years into it, we are beginning to reverse 2,000 years of a bad culture, including a Christian teaching of contempt for Jews and Judaism that has officially been repudiated at the highest levels of the Christian community. But sadly, during those four decades, when we were all busy, particularly here in North America, in Christian-Jewish relations, scant attention was paid to Muslim-Jewish relations, and I have learned from my Christian colleagues to Christian-Muslim relations. As we quite rightly heard, the third great monotheistic religion of the world. Now this was true, this scant attention, even though the world's only Jewish state, Israel, has tens of millions of Muslim neighbors, and some of its neighbors are officially Islamic states. This scant attention was true even though thousands of Christians live within predominantly Islamic societies. And this was true even though, as we heard just a few minutes ago, quite rightly, that our own country's foreign policy was directly involved with Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and many other countries with large Islamic 
populations. Despite all of this, scant attention was paid to Islam, to Muslims, to interreligious relations among the three religions until probably September the 11th, 2001. So, so much has changed since that day in New York and near my hometown in Virginia, at the Pentagon, and in Pennsylvania. It's then that attention was paid, finally, at long last, to Muslims and to Islam. And suddenly we woke up and realized that Islamic immigration to European countries, to Canada, to the United States, has made Islam a much more visible religious community than in the past. At the same time, we've also seen the rise of Islamic extremism, including the use of physical and psychological terrorism to advance a specific goal, which has made Islam, or part of the Islamic community, a continuing front page story. So let me ask a question. Neither uh, Professor Ahmed nor I are Trinitarians. He had three questions. I have about three questions also. You are a Jew living in Baghdad, the year is 1300, or you're a Jew living in what is now Frankfurt, Germany, the same year, 1300. The question is, which is better for you and your family? And I want to say, neither was wonderful, but there was a distinct difference between Baghdad and Frankfurt for Jews. But my work with the American Jewish Committee, despite all of that, shows that there's been a shocking lack of accurate knowledge about Islam among many Jews and many Christians, especially in the United States. So here are a few questions, though you're not being graded here at the University of California at Santa Barbara, a great university which, by the way, has so many now uh, Nobel Prize winners and drawing world attention to this community and to this great university and to the men and women who lead it. So you're not being graded, but try to answer these questions silently. When and where was Muhammad born? When and where did he die? What does the word Islam mean? Which country has the largest Muslim population? What are the five pillars of faith? A hint. One of them is occurring right now during this particular month. But it cuts other ways as well. Traveling as I've done in Lebanon and in Jordan, plus many meetings here in the United States, Canada, and in Europe with Muslims, it's clear to me that many Muslims, including those in academic positions, though certainly not our speaker here today, but others, especially in the Middle East, have almost little or no firsthand knowledge about Jews or Judaism. And this is a shocking, came as a shocking revelation when I briefed a group of Islamic scholars from the Middle East at the headquarters of the American Jewish Committee in New York in 1999, and I asked them in any language, had they read any book written by a Jew about Judaism? And the answer was no. So whether it deals with the Talmud or the Hebrew Bible or prophetic teachings or holidays or Zionism or the Holocaust or Jewish philosophy, which was so enriched during its period of uh, growth in Spain when uh, Muslims were the majority there. Sadly, 
I discovered so many Muslims in high positions of educational responsibility who either have a limited or a highly negative perception of Jews in Judaism. So let me move to my next point quickly. Because of the recent success in Christian Jewish relations, especially in this country and in this state of California, many Jews of good heart and goodwill incorrectly believe that the same template, the same template that was applied to Christian Jewish relations can now be applied in 2004 to Jewish-Muslim relations. It cannot be that way. And as an English poet said, uh, let me, as a poet has said, let me count the ways. Each faith, and this is such a truism, but I repeat it again, each faith is unique in its belief systems, in its sacred texts, in its polity, which is a fancy way of saying how we Jews or Muslims or Christians are organized in faith communities. And perhaps, most important of all, in our own bilateral relationship with the other. How Christians and Muslims relate to one another is very different than how Muslims and Jews relate or how Jews and Christians relate. Let me put it as bluntly as I can. A rabbi is not a priest, nor is a rabbi an imam. The Hebrew Bible is not the New Testament, nor is it the Quran, nor is the Quran like the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament. A synagogue is not a church, nor is it a mosque, and the encounter with each group bilaterally is quite different, and you get my point. You must differentiate and cannot apply the same template of Catholic-Jewish relations and substitute the word Islamic for Catholic, or Christian-Jewish relations and substitute the word Islamic for Christian. Each demands, each demands our respect, each tradition demands that we work in its own unique way. Now, there are three key issues, I said there would be three, that dominate Jewish-Muslim relations today, October 24, 2004. One is the viewing, the legitimacy, and the territorial integrity of the State of Israel. Two, looking deeply beyond the surface of theological similarities and theological differences between Islam and Judaism. And as mentioned above, overcoming as quickly as we can the lack of authentic knowledge that each group possesses about the other. Each one of these demands work, honesty, and a great deal of creativity in a time when there are snipers on all sides I don't mean it in necessarily in a physical way, but who would discourage any contact between Muslims and Jews in a constructive way. So when we look at the meaning of the state of Israel, its territorial integrity, its legitimacy, if we look beyond the superficial similarities and superficial differences and dig a little deeper into Islam and Judaism, and if we begin to develop authentic understanding of each group, we move past the cliches, the headlines, and the naysayers who wish us ill will in this encounter. And this is extremely important. And there are three phrases I want to leave you with for discussion, long after Professor Ahmed goes back to American University and 
long after I leave the University of California here at Santa Barbara. And these are phrases that you hear all the time but really need to be explored, and that's probably one of the reasons we're here today. First, we are all children of Abraham. I'm the senior editor of the series, The Children of Abraham. Because Jews, Muslims, and Christians all claim a spiritual connection to the first patriarch, all three groups, as we heard quite rightly, consider themselves children of Abraham. But what does this really mean for us as Jews, for Muslims, and for Christians? Is it the same Abraham, a different Abraham? And for Muslims and Jews, we have the special obligation to pursue the relationship Jews have with Isaac, as we just heard, and the relationship that Muslims have with Ishmael, both sons, by the way, of Abraham. So let's get beyond the phrase, we are all children of Abraham, and do the hard work, the hard work of exploring what that means for us personally, and what it has meant in history, and what it means in the future as a possible, possible light that can help us in our quest for mutual respect and understanding. The second is to explore the golden age in Spain. The golden age in Spain started in 711, a very interesting number to remember, very, very much more than a convenience store or a gambling number. It started in 711, uh, and it existed until January the 2nd, 1492, when both Jews and Muslims were expelled from the uh, Iberian Peninsula. In those years, the years of Maimonides, who had to flee Spain, the years of Yehuda HaLevi, the years of Solomon ibn Gabiro, Chastai ibn Shabrut, the classic works of Jewish philosophy, there was a great cross-fertilization. And Jews often forget that the Rambam, Moses Maimonides, actually wrote his, uh, some of his great works, not in Hebrew, but in Arabic. But we need to get below that golden age, which gives it a kind of a, a glow, and realize that it was uh, an age, but it wasn't always golden. There were shadows and sunlight. There were ups and downs. That living as a Jew, yes, in Cordova or Granada was one thing, but was it a golden age, and how golden? or was the golden age tarnished? Which is a way of, for my saying, in interreligious relations, we need to go beyond the placards and the slogans. And the th third phrase that needs to be very much explored, the first being, we're all children of Abraham. The second, it was a golden age of, of Spain for Jews living under Muslim uh, 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 majority. The third is, from the Quran, that Jews and Christians are people of the book. What does this mean theologically for Muslims? What has it meant historically in history? How has that phrase played out? Does it mean mere tolerance for Jews and Christians who live in lands where Muslims are the majority? Does it mean second-class citizenship? Does it mean equality? Does it mean respect because Jews and Christians uh, have sacred texts? In other words, dig a little deeper. And why do I say this in closing? We cannot afford any longer, not that we ever could, but certainly not in 2004, to settle for superficialities, to settle for cliches, 
to settle for the easy bites that appear on uh, radio and television or even in newspapers between Muslims and Jews or for that matter between Christians and Muslims. Golden age, yes, but what does it mean? Children of Abraham, yes, but what does it really mean and what does it mean for you and for me? And we are children of the people of the book. Now, this will all take work. And it means, however, that uh, time is fleeting. Some of you know the uh, Jewish uh, expression, the master of the house, meaning God is urgent. God wants us to do this. And we are not free to desist from the task. We may not live long enough. We may not see the finish of our work, but we are not free to desist. I think history will be very cruel to us, cruel to our generation living in the United States, where we have this enormous opportunity for interreligious encounter. I go beyond dialogue. I say beyond encounter, beyond dialogue and say encounter. Dialogue, as we quite rightly heard, is just often words. But to really move forward, if we do not do this after all that we have been through, after the experience of September the 11th, after all that we have endured, and we stand idly by and say it's business as usual, we stand in our cocoons of our self-righteous communities, enclosed, self-righteous, absolutely sure of who we are and what we are, and we do not venture out, and we do not begin to explore Muslim-Jewish relations, Christian-Muslim relations, and intensify Christian-Jewish relations, history will be very, very cruel to us. Historians will say, but the Americans of the early 21st century, they had an opportunity. They had models of interreligious cooperation. They had the resources. They had the leadership. They did not have the will. I'm very honored to be here at Santa Barbara to see that there are at least some people on a warm Sunday afternoon who have the will to move forward. I close with an English poet's words who was neither a Jew nor a Muslim, Robert Browning. You probably know from your high school class, I, I remember it well, Rabbi Ben Ezra was the name of the poem. And the opening words of the poem offer us hope. Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi Rudin, for raising these great issues, these important issues, and pointing the directions. I agree that post-September we are suddenly aware of how little we know about each other in terms of these great world religions thrown into a state of confrontation and relationships. I know that when I'm asked, I often say that like uh, Charles Dickens wrote about uh, a certain period of history, European history, that this is the best of times and the worst of times for Muslims living here in the United States. 
the best of times because there is so much interest in Islam. There's so much genuine attempt to reach out and understand Islam. I know students are involved, imams are involved, rabbis are involved, bishops are involved. It is the worst of times because there are excesses taking place even as we speak. Horror stories emerging, compromises to civil liberties, to human rights here in the United States. Girls wearing the hijab are often abused. They have been physically attacked. Mosques have been attacked. And this is not really the spirit of America itself. So something is being compromised here. I'm also aware of the huge gaps in understanding on both sides. The State Department has a program where it brings some very distinguished Muslims to America. And invariably, they ask me to give an introductory lecture or in, uh, talk over lunch. And recently, we had some very distinguished uh, Saudi scholars coming from Saudi Arabia. And these were vice chancellors and deans. And I began my talk about uh, introducing America to them, Islam in America, by asking them, had they read or heard of Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin or de Tocqueville? And not surprisingly, none of them had read any of these great founding fathers of America. And de Tocqueville wasn't, but he defined America in a certain sense. One of them then said that he had been a student in Virginia and he knew that he called him Benjamin Franklin. He thought he was Jewish and that he was the first president of the United States. And that's all he knew. So this was the chap who had studied here. And I suddenly realized the problem we faced. Now, if you think that's funny, I reverse this and I ask my American audiences, have you ever, ever heard of Muhammad Ali Jinnah? And most American audiences look blank. And yet Jinnah was, for Pakistan, the founder of the largest Muslim nation on earth in 1947, Pakistan. And he was, for Pakistan, a combination of Washington and Jefferson and all the founding fathers, because if he hadn't existed, there probably would not have been a Pakistan. And above all, for us today, he embodied democracy. He was the model of the modern Democrat. He wanted a modern Pakistan, a democratic Pakistan with rights for women, with rights for the minorities, for the Hindus, for the Christians, and for the Muslims. And he implemented this democracy. He never went to jail. He fought for and won Pakistan through constitutional struggles. This is remarkable. And this answers the question we ask ourselves after September 11, is Islam compatible with democracy? Such a great example for the Muslim world. If after the toppling of Saddam Hussein, we had gone to Iraq and said, you have a democratic model which is a Muslim model, perhaps we would have got a different response from the Iraqis. But the Iraqis throughout felt that democracy is coming from Washington. It's being imposed upon them, and we see the mess on the ground now, perhaps a situation spinning out of control. And yet, this example exists in the Muslim world. And the reason we don't use it is because we don't know about it. So I accept that today we are faced with this huge double ignorance and the barriers that we need to cross. Now, Rabbi Rudin raised three very important issues about Muslim Spain, about the Abrahamic roots, and about the people of the book.
how Islam views Jews and Christians, and the need to understand these three great areas of interaction. And I believe that this understanding is absolutely crucial because I find in each one of these issues, these three features of the relationship, something that gives me a great deal of hope. Abraham, now Bruce Feiler, the great authority, will tell you that Abraham at the best of times is a shadowy figure. We're not even sure whether he existed. Did he live in Iraq? Did he live in Saudi Arabia or in the Middle East or in Israel or in Palestine? Where did he live? We're not even sure. But to me, as a Muslim, the idea of Abraham as a great religious figure, as a great prophet, as a patriarch, committed to the notion of the one invisible God becomes absolutely crucial. And that is what I hang on to. And that is where we meet Jews and Christians and Muslims. And therefore that's important. Muslim Spain, again, as the rabbi has pointed out, there are no periods of history where everything is static because human nature and human societies are not static. They're changing all the time. They're changing day by day. Sometimes you have good periods. Sometimes you have bad periods. Sometimes you have periods where Muslims are persecuting Muslims. If you look at Pakistan today, Shias and Sunnis are killing each other in the last few weeks. Dozens of Muslims have been killed in mosques in Pakistan. Now, these are not Jews and Christians. These are Muslims killing Muslims. Muslim Spain is that kind of period in history. You've had long periods of friendship and tolerance between these faiths, and then bad periods where there's been killing on all sides. But put it in context. A thousand years ago, when the rabbi points out these great Jewish scholars writing in Arabic, he's absolutely right, these remarkable figures, Maimonides, a giant. And who is he a counselor to? To Sultan Salauddin, the great Muslim ruler. Maimonides is his main advisor and his main medical advisor. Can you have that kind of relationship in our world? And he's talking as a Jewish scholar, one of the great scholars of history of all time. And Jews are chief ministers, they're prime ministers, they're advisors, they're scholars, they're writers, as are Muslims. And when the dynasty wants to persecute people, the dynasty does not see whether you're Jewish or Muslim. The dynasty simply sees who opposes the ruler or the king. And that is what is important to understand. Ibn Khaldun, the great historian, and I'm named, my chair is named after Ibn Khaldun, and I want to congratulate Professor Richard for pronouncing Khaldun so well. I know it's always something that many of my American friends trip over, and they're not quite sure how to handle it. And he just went nimbly over it. Ibn Khaldun turns up in Granada, Muslim Spain, and he's almost jailed. He turns up, he returns back to Morocco. He is jailed. His great history is written in a basement. Now, he's in a basement not because he's a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, because these are the whims of rulers. My question to the rabbi is that when this is going on in Muslim Spain, what is happening to the Jews in the rest of Europe? What is happening to them in York? What is happening to them in Germany, where every crusade is begun by Jews being slaughtered on the way out to the Holy Land and being slaughtered on the way back? And that's what you have to remember and put it in a cultural context. You cannot expect the standards of 20, the 21st century and apply them to the 10th century. What gives me hope then is that there was a time with all the ups and downs and the vagaries of our human nature and human societies when these three people were able to say, yes, we recognize each other and we can live together. 
You are different, you have your own ways, I have my own ways, but we can create together. And above all, the respect for learning, that Cordoba had more books in it, Cordoba, the great city in Spain, more books in the main library than the rest of Europe put together. Just think of the figure I'm giving you. One library, more books than the rest of Europe put together. These are Jewish, Christian, Muslim authors working in Spain together as people living in that area. Third point about the people of the book again, put it in context, and I want to reverse this question. Muslims love and revere Moses, Jesus, and so on. When you reverse this, how many Jews or Christians even recognize Islam as an Abrahamic faith? For a thousand years, Islam has been reviled, the prophet has been abused, the God of Islam has been abused. And this makes it very difficult for the so-called extremists or the men of violence. It is very easy for them to say Jews and Christians are enemies. It is very easy for Osama bin Laden to say that every Christian and Jew is an enemy and you must fight them. And there are millions of Muslims who are listening to him. There is a debate in the Muslim world between people like Osama bin Laden and a person like me because we have two different ways of looking at Islam. Now, is he right or am I right? I don't know. I don't know what history is going to prove correct, but there is a battle within Islam. You need to understand that every time you abuse the prophet of Islam or the god of Islam, you're helping Osama bin Laden because you're providing more recruits to him, because you're allowing him to say that here are these enemies of Islam. Now, when we as Muslims recognize you and reach out to you and you in turn abuse our prophets and our God, you're going to find very, very few Muslims who are prepared to continue in this dialogue. So while we are able to criticize Islam and say, yeah, well, you know, they only recognize us as people of the book, what does that mean and what are the nuances? I would like to ask the rabbi what Jews think of Islam and the prophet of Islam and the God of Islam and what Christians have to think about us. It is only now, a millennium later, when these extraordinary figures like the Pope like the Archbishop of Canterbury, like the Chief Rabbi, and I've had the privilege and honor of being in dialogue with them who are reaching out and saying, yes, this is also part of the Abrahamic civilization. This is a major theological break we are talking about because for the first time, and I understand the problem, Judaism is the basis for the Abrahamic faiths. We have immense respect and love for Judaism. It comes with the base and then you have Christianity and a new phase of human history opens up. And there's a new way of looking at the Abrahamic faiths. And then comes Islam. Islam is the third of this Abrahamic series, if you like. And each one believes that we have the truth. Now, if we can understand that like the great philosopher or the philosophers who are asked to stand in a dark room and touch parts of an elephant and then describe the elephant, and their answers were all different, and yet the answers were all the same. Someone said, define what you're holding. And he said, I think it's a pillar. He was holding the leg of the elephant. Someone said, it's a fan, and he's holding the ear of the elephant. And this is the great story told by Rumi, the great philosopher, the mystic, the poet of Islam, equally loved by Jews and Christians and Muslims. So we have to understand, again, the philosophy of the Abrahamic faiths. And we have to, in the 21st century, accept what our traditions are giving us, the innovative leaders of the Abrahamic faiths like the rabbi and interpret them for us for the 21st century. 
I don't want to be locked up in battles and theological debates and polemics that were fought over the last thousand years and have resulted and brought us to this point in human history where we seem to be locked up in perpetual confrontation. I want to see a way forward. And the way forward is for the interpretation of the Abrahamic faiths for the 21st century. Thank you. Well, I'm an independent voter, and you talked about elephants, so perhaps we ought to also uh, maybe look at a donkey uh, or a jackass, uh, with, uh, it, because we only have about nine days to go to an election. On a much more serious note, I hope that you understand, particularly those of you who are not Muslims, who are Jews, Christians, agnostics, atheists, whatever, uh, what you're hearing today must be validated. It's very, very sad to me in my work that I've seen, and it isn't just, we all easy to blame the media, but it's many people who take the most extreme statements that are made by people who are Muslims and trumpet them as if that's all there is to Islam and to people who are Muslim. So we need to treasure and validate voices that are in our midst, such as we hear today, and validate them so that the general public begins to understand there is more going on, there's a ferment, there's a battle going on, as we heard from uh, Akbar Ahmed, that needs to be understood by those of us who are not Muslims, uh, but who wish moderates and progressives and, and people like our speaker today success. So that's number one. They, they need to be validated and supported and not to be uh, cast aside as, quote, oh, well, it's just a voice in the wilderness, just one person. Number two, uh, my own organization, the American Jewish Committee, commissioned a study after World War II with a fancy name but a very, very important subject, the altruistic personality. They interviewed Christians slash Gentiles who actually saved Jews during World War II. And this is the two points that they discovered, and Professor Ahmed uh, unknowingly uh, affirmed them. The first thing they found out was that every one of the Christians under Nazi occupation who actually saved Jews, didn't talk about it, but physically saved Jewish lives, each one of them before World War II had a face-to-face -face knowledge of Jews in their hometowns. Doesn't mean that those people they knew as kids growing up or as teenagers were the very ones that they saved but they were unable to accept the caricatures and the cartoons of the Nazi propaganda machine that made Jews into subhumans. They knew, now millions of people knew, but these people acted because they knew Jews as human beings, as real people. And number two, each of them learned, interestingly enough, about Jews, not from their priests or ministers or pastors in churches, but from guess who? their parents. Each one of them affirmed that somehow their parents didn't sit there and say, now Jews, we have to respect them and have mutual understanding. But as, as a parent, we all know that through osmosis, through uh, waves, you send out messages to your children. So these are two points to remember when we're dealing with children and grandchildren about people who are not like us in our religion. Personal experiences, face to face, 
No Muslims, no Jews, no Christians, not as caricatures, not as stereotypes. And two, make sure you convey uh, through words, eyebrow arching, smiles, a personal understanding what mutual respect and understanding means. This we found in all of the Christians who saved Jews during World War II, the altruistic personality. They didn't see themselves as heroes and heroines. They all said, interestingly, that's what my parents would have wanted me to do. That's what my mother and father would have wanted me to do. That's what I, I knew from my school days. Uh, I knew Jews in my class. So the personal human elements, such as we're establishing here today, as we did at the very beginning when we greeted one another. The third point I'd make is in the 21st century, I'm seeing, this is me, I don't know if you agree, the question and answer will reveal that. In the 21st century, we're seeing something different than we did just in the last century. In the last century, we had people, and I hate to mention their names on this beautiful campus, on this beautiful day, but Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong, it seems to me, crushed religion as best they could to impose a political control on their countries. They really demolished, certainly in Germany, attempted to demolish uh, the Christian churches and created their own system. And Stalin, we know, know his system of uh, attack on religion. But the object was to impose a hegemony of political power on their societies. I think we're seeing a reverse in some parts of the world where religious leaders or people who use religion are crushing political dissent and political systems to impose a religious hegemony on their society, something very different than we saw in the 20th century. Not so much political control, but religious control or control in the name of religion. And finally, of course, I certainly agree, and those of us who were at high holiday services just a month or so ago know that one of the most moving prayers in the Jewish liturgy on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is the Una Tana Tokev. This is the prayer that affirms the holiness of those great days of the new year in the Day of Atonement. And tradition ascribes it to uh, Rabbi um, of Mainz who wrote this at the time of the Crusades in the Rhineland. And Professor Ahmed is exactly right, as those Crusaders, and crusade, in case you don't remember, comes from the word for cross in Latin, as they were marching towards Jerusalem to, quote, reclaim it from the infidel, heavy quotes, they killed infidels along the way, and those infidels happened to be along the Rhineland in what is now France and Germany, and they were Jews. So when we hear the word crusade coming out of the lips of the President of the United States right after September 11th, we can understand how that reverberated and was quickly removed from the presidential vocabulary. It's extremely volatile word, and uh, we would probably all do well as Christians, Muslims, and Jews to look at the Crusades and begin to understand how each group perceives it. Now that since you're on a university campus, I'll close with the answers to my test questions so that you can pass Professor Richard Heck's test or Professor Leonard Wallach's exams. Number one, it was better as a Jew living in Baghdad in 1300 than in Frankfurt. As I said, neither was a picnic, but if you had to choose, and people didn't get those choices, Baghdad, Islamic society, was better than uh, Christian society the same year. Uh, Muhammad was born in Mecca in the year 570 of the Christian era. He died in Medina, both cities in today's Saudi Arabia, in 632. 
Islam, in case I'm sure you know, means submission to God. And the country today with the largest Islamic population is Indonesia. And the five pillars of the faith, uh, uh, the oneness of God, the confession of faith, prayer five times a day, charity, of course, Ramadan, fasting during Ramadan, and at least once during a person's life, a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, these are such basic answers that I'm embarrassed when uh, my fellow Jews don't even know them, but I share them with you to give you some example of the work that needs to be done. Uh, I quoted Robert Browning before. Let me close, since I'm a rabbi, with the prophet Zechariah, not, not an English poet. Zechariah a, has a wonderful phrase. He said, we are prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. And this is who we are. It is the best of times and the worst of times, the tale of two cities. But we're also prisoners of hope. And that's the, the imperative that I think both of us send out to you today. Um, don't trivialize one another. Dig deep beyond the cliches, the placards, and the slogans. Validate the true heroes and heroines among us who are laboring to change the culture in which we live, which is so filled with hate and suspicion and, and the lack of knowledge. And understand that we're playing for the very highest of stakes. We're playing for the future of our children and our grandchildren. And again, history, history will not be kind to us if we fail in this test. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Ahmed and Rabbi Rudin. I have the first question, and while I'm asking this question and the others, if there are continuing questions, please continue to put them on the white cards, and monitors will be collecting them. I believe this question is for both of you. What should be the role of religious leadership in allowing Jews and Muslims to understand one another better? religious leadership? Well, religious leadership is only as good as the people who follow it. That's uh, number one. And number two, uh, it's very important to understand that each of the, we're talking about three faiths today, and each faith is so diverse, uh, but particularly Judaism is decentralized. I can only speak for Judaism as, as someone who lives in that community and knows it well. Um, uh, I get very offended when... Um, Rabbi X or Rabbi Aleph or Bet or Gimel or Dalad, A, B, C, or D, if you don't know Hebrew, that, that, that they're quoted and sometimes they're given as much prominence as a Rabbi uh, somebody else uh, who may represent someone more. Now, every rabbi is totally independent. You must understand that. They're, we're members of associations. We uh, went to um, uh, seminaries, most of us. Uh, different seminaries, we have different points of view, different observances, different rituals. We do live our Jewish lives differently. So religious leadership, though, is only as good as the people who will follow. And um, the test that's now facing certainly Judaism in, in Israel, in the United States, in the rebirth of Jewish communities in Europe, is religious leadership. And uh, it's going to take uh, uh, an enormous effort to get a community, and, and now people who are not Jewish, if you'll bear with me on this moment, this is almost 60 years after the end of the Shoah. 
And in all my work at the American Jewish Committee, I've heard um, people who are not Jewish say, oh, get over it. They say it in a nice way. They don't say it as bluntly as that. You know, that's in the past. Let's, let's, and Americans love this. Let's, let's move on. Let's get over that, whatever it is. Get over it. Move forward. Get that behind us. Um, people who are not Jewish who are listening to me right now have to understand we are a wounded community. It's only been 60 years. We have out there right now here in Santa Barbara people from Europe who came here in the 1930s and people who lost their families and never had a chance to come to North America or to Israel. So we're not asking, you know, oh, oh, uh, oh, oh be nice to us, but understand this is a wounded, bleeding community that is only 60 years since, well, 59 years officially, since the end of World War II, 1945. Uh, in the long history of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, 60 years is a very short time. So we have to regroup, we have to recreate, we have to recast ourselves. Uh, that's why Israel is so important. Uh, and I'll quote my friend, uh, speaking of religious leadership, uh, the late uh, John O'Connor, the uh, Cardinal Archbishop of New York, Roman Catholic Cardinal, of course. Um, some Jews were offended by his theology, but I'll give it to you. Just I'll be the agent of transmission. He saw in the state of Israel a collective resurrection of the Jewish people. For him, of course, Jesus is the resurrected figure. But he understood from his Catholic perspective, his Christian perspective, that Jews, after three, just three years after the end of the Holocaust, coming together and recreating the third Jewish commonwealth was for O'Connor, speaking as a cardinal, was a collective resurrection of the Jewish people. Now whether you accept it or not, I think it's an interesting analogy and his religious leadership was very important in, in the United States during his career because he was able to convey to Catholics and to people at the Vatican how important he saw this collective resurrection and the meaning of the Shoah uh, for him. And so there's an example of religious leadership. So we are going to need new O'Connors in all our communities to move us forward. Otherwise, uh, it will still be um, those people out there and over yonder and up here and down there and, and uh, the Osama bin Ladens who will be the ones who will dictate and who will set the agenda. And that would be it already is, but that will continue to be a great human tragedy if no other, quote, religious leadership emerges. Thank you. Professor Ahmed. The question of religious leadership in Islam is a very important one. It's important because it's so often misunderstood in the West. When I am in dialogue with, say, a bishop or a rabbi, very often, instinctively, they're assuming that the dialogue from the Muslim side should be conducted by a religious figure. Now in Islam, very consciously, Islam believed and practiced the idea that every Muslim has direct access to God. That religion has matured to the point when every individual is able to understand through knowledge, through understanding, through solitude, contemplation, meditation, faith itself. So ideal Islam did away with priesthood. And you will see that in Sunni lands, the priest, quote unquote, the priest, whether he's the imam or whether he's in charge of the mosque, 
really is restricted to the mosque itself. In times of great crisis, you may have a religious figure emerging who takes leadership, but invariably leadership is either with the general or the king or the scholar or with the political leader, very rarely with the religious leader. Now, you have a problem because in the Muslim world today, you have 57 states, most of them ruled by military leaders or dynasts, very few religious scholars steeped in religious tradition, and you have a problem immediately in the Muslim world. So the notion of who speaks for Islam, the big question, who speaks for Islam, is not just an academic exercise where we discuss who speaks for Islam, but a very practical and real question. And we need to be asking this question because we need to come up with answers. Because depending on this answer, you're going to set the direction for the world of Islam. And I am very often in dismay when I look at the Muslim world. If you took an average random sample, random questions being answered from Morocco to Indonesia, today a cult figure, an icon, would be Osama bin Laden. In my country, in Pakistan, I believe something like 10 or 20,000 Pakistanis have named their sons Osama bin Laden. I would have liked them to name their sons Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, who believed in democracy. So these are the great challenges we face within Islam. To me, if I talk of a Muslim leadership, it isn't necessarily a religious figure. And I'm talking of Sunni Islam because Shia Islam, which is about 10% of the Muslim world, is different for all kinds of historical reasons. They have a hierarchy, they have a clerical structure, and so on. To me, a Muslim leader would be something like Hamid Malik, my friend sitting here, who represents the most important Muslim organization in LA, and he's driven up from LA for this uh, particular dialogue we're having. Or the senator, Senator Javed Jabbar, an intellectual, a writer, a scholar, an activist, who are defining Islam, and who are not giving up to the so-called spokesmen of Islam. And they're constantly in debate, challenging definitions of Islam in the press, in the media, and very often being attacked and standing up to these attacks. So the question of who speaks for Islam becomes important. And again, I want to underline that every time the prophet is attacked or God is attacked in Islam, it doesn't help these people. It helps those people who want to draw a sharp, stark line between us and them and who advocate very often violence against non-Muslims. Thank you. You can't change people's deep beliefs and values through dialogue. So, terrorists? Either one of you can answer this. I'm reading this verbatim. Well, as uh, Professor uh, Ahmed said, uh, in this Islam there is no uh, uh, priest, and uh, we Jews got rid of our Kohanim, our priests, some time ago. We have rabbis, which means a teacher. There's only one priest up on the stage today, and she's not wearing a red tie, so you know, you, you know who it is. Um, the, I, I would object to that, that question about dialogue. I mean, uh, Martin Buber said all life is real is meeting, and all life is dialogue. Um, and we have dialogue with our spouses, with our children. I mean, God knows we, we need more of it. Uh, with our grandchildren, with our faculty members, uh, with our recalcitrant uh, cousins and uncles and aunts. 
Um, and I tried to point out, on a more serious note, with the altruistic personality, that face-to-face -face contacts that were held in Germany or in Poland or in uh, the Czech Czechoslovakia or in Romania or in France or in Holland or Denmark before the war, that was a form of dialogue when you go to school with a kid and you go to their home and they come to your home and you have this, we say in Hebrew, panim al panim, face to face. That changes not only perceptions, it changes beliefs. Changes beliefs. And we've seen it in this country time and time and time again. So that's a form of dialogue. Dialogue doesn't mean just uh, two people sitting and talking either at or with or to each other. And uh, a dialogue is also the relationship, as we discovered on that altruistic personality, of a parent at the uh, supper table who expresses certain views. What do you think of African Americans? Well, you can tell in an instant, or Hispanics, or homosexuals, or Muslims, or Jews, or Anglicans, what that facial reaction is of a parent to any group that you mention. And the kid, the child, catches it immediately. That's a form of dialogue. It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. So dialogue can change and does change uh, attitudes. So uh, to the person who wrote that question, uh, I would seriously object to that if we both define dialogue the same way, if we mean a set debate where people throw verbal uh, epithets at each other and call that dialogue, well, that doesn't, that doesn't change anything, makes it worse. But those relationships of knowing about one another and having those experiences with one another is a form of dialogue. Read Martin Buber, all life is meeting and meeting is a dialogue. Thank you. Um, the question also pointed to the futility of dialogue with the terrorists. I think that is the purpose of this question. In that sense, I agree with the rabbi that dialogue is absolutely essential and important and must be pursued. But the question is valid in the sense, is it worth having dialogue with the extremists, the people of violence? It isn't a question of having dialogue with these people or these groups. It's a question of bringing the middle community, the mass, quote-unquote, along with you. Because if you're not having this dialogue, then forget the extremes, the marginal groups who claim to speak on behalf of the world of Islam. You end up by losing the mainstream community, and that is why dialogue is so important. It is this community that you need to be aiming for, need to be converting, need to be exchanging ideas and discussions and debates with, and need to be then carrying with you. And this is what worries me, that unless we are pursuing this with greater vigor, we may end up by losing large sections of the mainstream community. And that is our focus of dialogue, ultimately. Okay. Dr. Ahmed and Rabbi Rudin. We are fortunate to live in a society with such religious pluralism and openness. In today's New York Times, Thomas Friedman accounts a new trend in Iraq to call American forces Jews. In short, Jew has become a derogatory comment in much of the Muslim world. How can we get such vital dialogue to the areas which need them most? Is the fate of pluralism in the Middle East dim? Well, Thomas Friedman was here, and uh, he's a graduate of the same university that my daughter went to, Brandeis University, so I'll put a plug in for Tom Friedman. Well, what else is new? You know, um, I was in Poland uh, not too long ago, and the word J-E-W 
is used for anything or anybody that they don't like or think is foreign or alien or not Polish. That Jews lived in Poland for a thousand years and constituted 10% of the country's population before the Nazis arrived doesn't seem to matter. So what we're hearing in Iraq is, is more of the same. Uh, if you don't like something that is, quote, alien or foreign, it's a Jew. Now, to Jews who are in this audience today, that's nothing new. That's, that's what we've lived with and continue to live with. It's sad, it's, uh, it's horrible, and it has repercussions for both the people who say it and the people against whom it is said. Um, and uh, there's not, I mean, Friedman is, is I didn't read the article, but uh, Friedman is probably right. But uh, I, I think you have to go beyond that and continue to validate, I know this is a broken record, those Islamic leaders, teachers, uh, um, who, who speak out courageously and validate them and continue to push forward. Uh, and uh, that, that's a job. Rather than to capitulate and say, well, that's it, the game is over, there's nothing more we can do. Uh, and, and then to retreat into our, uh, as I said, our very self-contained, uh, very self-righteous uh, cocoons. That would be a loss. But the word, using the word Jew, I mean, to me, it's more of the same. It's a tragedy of the first order, and it, it's a boomerang. It will affect those who use it as well as those against whom it's used. Thank you. And uh, this tendency in the Arab world, in the Middle East, uh, is uh, notable. It is remarkable. It's uh, spiked. Uh, we have the example of the documentary based on the fictitious protocols of the elders of Zion. Now, millions of people will see that, and we all know that it was concocted by the Tsar's secret service in the late 19th century. But millions of people seeing that documentary are going to assume that this is reality because they're seeing television and they're believing it. And this is, again, feeding into anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism, anti-Westernization, and so on. That is why the challenge for us, certainly for me as a Muslim and a Muslim scholar, is to go back to the foundations and emphasize the Abrahamic links with Judaism. Because no Muslim who is a practicing Muslim can be anti-Semitic. By definition, he cannot be. Because the legacy that he inherits is far too great and far too strong that links him to Judaism. And that is what has to be rediscovered and re-emphasized. And in that, the failure to do so in Muslim leaders and in non-Muslims will mean this rampant anti-Semitism, which I find very, very disturbing. In addition, I want to make the point that when I was asked to speak at the uh, synagogue in 1999 in London, uh, the first Muslim to be invited to give the Rabbi Goldstein Memorial Lecture, the title of my talk was Islamophobia and Anti-Semitism, the, the two sides of the same coin. Because the context is very different, anti-Semitism is very different, Islamophobia very different, but both emerge from a hatred of the other, which in our cases is familiar and yet different. And it begins to feed on this hatred. And I told Judea Pearl when we were in London a few weeks ago, I said, look, Judea, you're seeing this incident. There was some incident about uh, which concerned Islamophobia, an attack on a mosque or something. And I said, Judea, almost like clockwork, I can guarantee you that three days from now, four days from now, you're going to be reading about an attack on a Jewish cemetery. 
And this happened. And I, I took him in the Guardian and I showed it to him the next morning. I said, Judy, I see this. Because we really are down a very slippery slope. Muslims today, Jews tomorrow, Catholics the next day, and it goes on, blacks, whites, yellows, whatever. So we have to constantly, constantly be vigilant. Human societies, human civilizations can very quickly unravel. So if we have something to clutch at, a straw to clutch at, we need to hold on to it. And that is why any example, whether it's Muslim Spain, whether it's the Abrahamic notion, is worth hanging on to. It's just 60 seconds. I don't want to sound like I, I minimize what uh, is coming out of Iraq. And here I want to second uh, what uh, Professor Ahmed said. Um, it's very clear, and I think every Jew in the audience knows it, that the worst of European Jew hatred, that's what I would call it, I wouldn't even call it anti-Semitism, uh, from the Nazi period of Julius Streicher and Joseph Goebbels and others, those images, those cartoon-like characters, those uh, loutish figures, those ugly uh, Jewish uh, caricatures and stereotypes have left Europe. Well, they haven't left Europe. They've been exported from Europe, imported into uh, parts of the Islamic world, and then are being recycled and being reused. And that's what we're getting there. That's why I use the analogy of Poland and now Iraq, where the word Jew uh, means anything that people don't, is distasteful uh, to who is ever saying it. But I don't want for a minute to minimize it. It's, it's one of the most disturbing fashions because right now, 60 years after the end of World War II, the place that we're seeing the Nazi caricatures is in some parts of the Islamic world. And that is the spike that we're seeing. So it's raw, uh, raw uh, classic Jew hatred coming out in education and some uh, the Egyptian TV series that was referred to using the protocols of the elders of Zion as a source book, as a primary source book in many ways, uh, that, that is what is most disturbing. And I think the West, if there is such a thing as the West, has been very um, cavalier about it, rather, rather um, not too worried about it, having fought a war against Nazism and fascism, believing that those images and stereotypes and caricatures are gone, and then to see them reoccur uh, and reborn, uh, a lot of people in the West just don't want to come to terms with those, with those images. We are prisoners of hope, but we are also prisoners, prisoners of the time. clock. And we must stop. Thank you both, Rabbi Rudin and Professor Ahmed. All of you who have purchased books and wish to have them signed may form a line, I believe, in this aisle on the right-hand side of the stage. Um, the authors will sign the books here on stage. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much.